Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 60 Minutes ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. You seem very frustrated with the United States. I'm disillusioned. President Erdogan is not the only one in Turkey disillusioned with America right now. So are many of his countrymen. And most of the tension can be traced back to July when a faction of the Turkish military tried to overthrow Erdogan and his government. Do you believe that there was any U.S. involvement? I'm not going to blame the United States, but that's what my people will think. We feel like we're treated like second-class citizens because they don't care as much about us as they do the men. Lloyd will try a long hit. What a goal from Lloyd! Carly Lloyd is the best female soccer player in the world, and she plays for the number one team in the world, the U.S. women. But despite their achievements, the players say they've been discriminated against, paid less, and treated worse next to the U.S. men's team. Do you think you should be paid more than the men's team? Yeah, absolutely. Why? We win. We're successful. Should get what we deserve. Bruno Mars may be the hardest working man in show business. Guess who's back again? And when you hear how he grew up, you'll understand why this throwback never takes anything for granted. Right this was your house? I just really care about what people see. I want them to know that I'm, I'm working hard for this. The artists I look up to, like, you know, Michael, Prince, James Brown, they're not phoning it in. They're going up there to murder anybody that performs after them or performs before them. I'm Steve Croft. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm Lara Logan. I'm Nora O'Donnell. I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories tonight on 60 Minutes. 
Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. When Donald Trump is sworn in as the 45th president of the United States, he'll be forced to deal with a lot of complicated international issues, especially Turkey. It's an indispensable but angry NATO ally right now, led by an assertive, strong-minded president who you will hear from shortly, Rajiv Tayyip Erdogan. He's been making noises lately about perhaps going his own way in the Middle East and is being courted by Russia. If it sounds Byzantine, it should be noted that the word was coined to describe the complicated history and politics of this land. With war raging on two of its borders and inundated with refugees, Turkey is right in the middle of things, as it has been for the past 2,000 years. Its largest city sits astride the Bosphorus Strait, a body of water that separates Asia from Europe, east from west, and the Islamic world from Christendom. It was known as Byzantium at the time of Christ in Constantinople in the Middle Ages, before the Ottoman hordes overran the city, converted the cathedrals into grand mosques, and ruled an empire that lasted 600 years. Today, Istanbul and the Republic of Turkey still have a foot in both cultures, a Muslim population, a Western-style democracy, and NATO's second-largest army in the most dangerous neighborhood in the world. Describe the relationship with Turkey right now. Extremely important, extremely complicated, at the top of the next president's agenda. Because? First of all, it's location. Location is everything. Former U.S. Ambassador James Jeffrey spent much of his diplomatic career in Turkey, a country that shares borders with Syria, Iraq, Iran, and the Black Sea to the north with Russia. But more importantly, Turkey also plays host to the United States and other NATO countries at a number of critical air bases like Incirlik that serve as staging areas for military operations in the Middle East and are vital to projecting U.S. military power all the way from Europe to India. And how important are those bases? They're extremely important. We could not be doing the campaign against ISIS right now in northern Iraq and in Syria without these bases. So the U.S. can't afford to lose those bases? Absolutely not. This is the man who allows the U.S. access to those bases, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the conservative, nationalistic, some would say autocratic leader who has governed the democracy for the past 13 years. We met him last month at the brand new 1,100-room palace in Ankara, which is emblematic of Erdogan's admiration for the grandeur of Turkey's Ottoman past and his ambition to make it once again the most powerful country in the region. But Erdogan is upset with U.S. policies in Syria that he says have led to a clear and present security threat on his southern border, interfered with his ability to defend his country, and inundated Turkey with nearly three million refugees, twice the number that has flooded into Europe. We have addressed these issues, discussed them with President Obama and Vice President Biden. They failed to rise to the occasion and handle these issues seriously. This is quite upsetting for us. You seem very frustrated with the United States. Well, let me be very frank in my remarks. 
and I've been known for my candor. I wouldn't speak the truth if I said I was not disillusioned, because I am disillusioned. President Erdogan is not the only one in Turkey disillusioned with America right now. So are many of his countrymen, who feel that their Western allies care more about their own interests than Turkey's. Most of the tension and anti-Americanism can be traced back to the night of July 15th here in the heart of Istanbul. Factions of the Turkish military shut down the Bosphorus Bridge that connects Europe and Asia and launched a coup to overthrow the elected government. It wasn't long after that F-16s, commandeered by a rogue faction of the Air Force, streaked fast and low across the skies of Istanbul and Ankara. Sonic boom shattered windows. The plotters used tanks and troops to seize strategic buildings and military bases and shut down Istanbul's main airport. And in something never seen before in the capital of a NATO country, the parliament in Ankara was bombed and helicopter gunships strafed the presidential palace. Soldiers stormed television stations and announced that Turkey was under martial law. President Erdogan was on vacation with his family when he learned a coup was underway. He wanted to address the country, but had no access to the media. So he used the FaceTime app on a borrowed phone to call into a Turkish television station. He pleaded for people to take to the streets and fill the square. Tens of thousands responded, facing down tanks and helicopters. As volleys were fired into crowds, Erdogan boarded a plane and flew towards Istanbul. Were you afraid for your life and the lives of your family members? Steve, Steve, in our faith there is a concept. We surrender ourselves to death. If you're the leader, you have to communicate the message of immortality to your people. Because I believe if a leader hides behind a rock, then the people will hide behind a mountain. His return to Istanbul proved to be the turning point. By daybreak, the coup attempt had failed. More than 200 were dead. Erdogan immediately blamed the revolt on his arch enemy, an elderly and exiled cleric named Fethullah Gulan, whose followers had infiltrated the highest levels of the Turkish military, judiciary, and civil service. For the past 17 years, Gulan has been leading a reclusive life in the United States on a 26-acre retreat in the Pocono Mountains. For months, Erdogan has demanded that his American ally return Gulan to Turkey. This man is the leader of a terrorist organization that has bombed my parliament. We have extradited terrorists to the United States in the past, and we expect the same thing to be done by the United States. The U.S. is insisting that the extradition process must be handled through U.S. courts to evaluate the evidence. The delay has created widespread suspicions here that the U.S. government is protecting Gulan and that its intelligence agencies may have been involved or had advanced knowledge of the coup. Members of Erdogan's government have suggested that publicly. The U.S. has denied it. Do you believe that there was any U.S. involvement? I'm not going to blame the United States, but that's what my people will think. Why are you still keeping that man? So long as you harbor him there. I'm sorry, don't get offended, but this is the perception of the Turkish nation and the Turkish people. I am 
taking from your answer that you have done nothing to discourage uh, the Turkish people from believing that. I cannot deceive my people. I cannot deceive my people here because I'm suffering right now. The United States is not suffering, but I'm suffering because of the 241 martyrs that we have buried. Erdogan had begun a crackdown on the Gulenist movement and other perceived enemies before the attempted coup. After it, he used a state of emergency to begin a massive effort to purge them from the government and Turkish society. More than 30,000 people have been arrested or detained including generals, judges, prosecutors, mayors, members of parliament, teachers, and journalists. Another 100,000 people have been fired or suspended from government jobs, and 150 media outlets have been shut down. Some critics in Turkey and some people in the United States have said that this is an overreaction. This is a crackdown on the political opposition, not a crackdown on terrorists. Bizde devletin benim in Turkey, they attempted to destroy my state. And of course, we could not remain silent. We could not remain indifferent. And these measures are being taken by prosecutors and judges in full accordance with the rule of law. There are not many people in Turkey today eager to publicly criticize the government. Salih Özel is an academic and a prominent political commentator. I think um, this has gone beyond only the Gulenists. A lot of teachers had been dismissed who probably had nothing to do with the Gulenists. A lot of newspaper people have been dismissed, although they have nothing with the Gulenists. And I think a lot of people who really had nothing to do with the coup attempt itself are now being burned. Do you think the government is becoming more, and the, and the presidency is becoming more authoritarian? We are moving in that direction, yes. The presidency has now accumulated a lot more power than is stipulated in the, in the Constitution, and it will continue to accumulate more. This is misperception. It is out of the question. We have saved our country from the hands of a heinous coup, and we are very much determined to protect our democracy. There's a strong bent of authoritarianism that runs through Turkish history and Turkish life, and Erdogan's message and actions have played well with the public. After the failed coup, his approval rating jumped to 68%. Much of that support comes from more traditional, conservative Muslims who have long been marginalized in Turkish society. Erdogan has embraced them, courted them, and included them in his government. He is a brilliant politician when it comes to talking to common people and with their discourse. Ece Temokuran is a Turkish writer who chronicles the country's cultural and political changes. She believes this is all part of Erdogan's vision for a new Turkey. The new Turkey does not ask you to be more religious. It asks you to be more obedient. It has to be obedient, it has to be male, conservative, religious, and, you know supporting the uh, governing party. Erdogan's new Turkey has been a source of concern in Washington. While the two NATO allies still share the same goals of replacing the Assad government in Syria and defeating ISIS, each country has its own special interests and priorities, and in some cases, its own allies. The United States is obsessed with ISIS, 
Turkey is obsessed with Kurdish separatist groups that have been waging a decades-long war inside their country. This is where it gets complicated. The U.S. is supporting and arming Kurdish groups that Turkey considers bitter enemies. And they've responded by bombing the U.S. allies. You cannot defend another terrorist organization just because they are fighting ISIS as well. You cannot make a distinction between a good terrorist organization and a bad terrorist organization. But this is something that we did not come to an agreement with the United States about. Into all this acrimony between Erdogan and the United States has stepped Russian President Vladimir Putin, one of the first world leaders to express solidarity with Turkey after the failed coup. Since then, the two countries have finalized a major pipeline deal and agreed to step up military and intelligence contacts. Are you reevaluating your alliance and relationship with NATO and the United States? Right now, such a thing is not in question. We are moving in the same direction with NATO that we have always done. According to one informed observer, what Erdogan is really looking for is an answer to this question. Is the U.S. truly committed to use all of its power, including its military, to preserve order in the region, stop terrorism, and protect the interests of Turkey? Yes or no? It's a difficult question to answer because the Middle East is such a messy place. But right now, it looks like the answer from Donald Trump may be yes. His aides have described Turkey as a vital ally and called for the extradition of Fethullah Gulen. And Trump himself has suggested he has high hopes for a closer relationship. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Few teams have been as glorious on the soccer field as the United States women's national team. They've won three World Cups, four Olympic gold medals, and set the standard in the most popular sport on the planet. But despite their achievements, the players say they have been discriminated against, paid less, and treated worse next to the U.S. men's team. Soccer may be known as the beautiful game, but the team has embarked on a bruising and historic legal fight for equality, and their opponent is the U.S. Soccer Federation, their own employer. For the players, it's the match of their lives. They hope a victory will help close the gap, not just in sport, but in any job where women do the same work as men for less pay. We feel like we're treated like second-class citizens because they don't care as much about us as they do the men. Lloyd will try a long hit. What a goal from Lloyd! Carly Lloyd is considered the best female soccer player in the world and captains the U.S. team. We recently spoke to her, co-captain Becky Sauerbrunn, and their teammates Kristen Press and Morgan Bryan. There's a long history of athletes battling their employers for more pay. It happens in the NBA, it happens in the NFL. What's different about this fight? This is a social movement, I think. This is about gender discrimination, and I don't think that positive change occurs in the world unless it has to. How does this fight rank in some of the competitions you've been in? It's the fight, you know? I mean, we have been in some, some, major, some major battles on the field, but this, is, this could be the fight that we are a part of. 
Skill check. The team is made up of the best female soccer players from around the country. And for 25 years, they've ruled the world. In 1999, when Brandy Chastain scored to beat China in the finals of the World Cup, her celebration announced the beginning of a new era in women's sports. For the 2015 final, an estimated 30 million people watched on TV in the U.S. Short of the ground, quick shot, goal! As Carly Lloyd's three goals sealed a huge win against Japan. It was, and remains, the highest rated soccer match in American history including games played by the U.S. men. We're America's dream team, and we've been at the forefront. We've been at the top and I think the number one team uh, in women's sports history. How has U.S. Soccer Federation helped you guys make it to where you are? When you compare this federation to all the other federations across the globe, they have invested the most money in this women's program. They have, and that's why we've gotten as far as we have. But to be paid equally, you know, it's, it's not about what they think it's fair, it's, it's what is fair. After their 2015 World Cup triumph, the team was honored with a parade down New York City's Canyon of Heroes. But behind the ticker tape, their relationship with U.S. soccer was breaking down over a new contract. Outspoken goalkeeper Hope Solo was on the team for 19 years. Time and time again, we asked that we wanted to be paid equally to the men. And I'll never You've been asking for that for many years? Yeah, we have. We have. Every time we brought up the men, it pissed them off, it annoyed them, and they'd say, don't bring up the men, don't bring it up. Globally, men's soccer is undeniably more popular and profitable than the women's game. When Germany won the World Cup in 2014, FIFA, the sport's international governing body, awarded them $35 million. A year later, when the U.S. women won the cup, the U.S. Soccer Federation received $2 million. Big run in the box. Men also make major league salaries playing for brand-name club teams. Women's pro clubs have struggled financially. So the women say they rely on their national team income to pay their bills, unlike the men. How are they paid differently? There's two different pay structures. The men get paid um, per game. Whether they win or lose, they get paid. The women were on a salary-based uh, contract. It's a pay structure the women themselves wanted and agreed to in 2005 and again in 2013. A consistent salary of up to $72,000 a year and bonuses for wins of $1,350. They also get health insurance and maternity leave. The men enjoy no guaranteed salary and fewer personal benefits, but they can make as much as $17,625 for a win. We wanted to compare two of the top players. Salaries vary, but in 2015, Hope Solo was paid about $366,000 in total by U.S. soccer. In 2014, also a World Cup year for the men, Team USA goalkeeper Tim Howard was paid $398,495. She played in 23 games for the U.S. He played in eight. When you break it down per game, I think it's about three times as much. Two years ago, Hope Solo convinced the team to hire lawyer Rich Nichols to try to get them a better contract. 
And I said, look, you are in control. This is your business. You have to take control of it. And you can be in control of it, but you have to be unified. You got to get a new deal. What kind of deal would the women accept? Equal. Equal pay. Well, what does equal mean? You want the same agreement the men have? We want the same money that, that the men are making. Exactly. That's 5000 minimum. Uh, that's that $8,000 um, bonus if you tie a game and the 17625 if you win. We want equal money. We have to win and perform in order to even make 1350 You're professional women. You signed this deal. Do you look back and say, why did I agree to that deal? Or A little bit, but it's also when it comes down to it, we just kind of had to be like, oh, you're just going to say no to everything that we're putting on the table. We didn't know how to fight and in and, and which ways we could fight. Do you think you should be paid more than the men's team? Yeah, absolutely. Why? We win. We're successful. Should get what we deserve. Last year, the top female players did make more money from U.S. soccer than the men's team. But their lawyer, Rich Nichols, says that's only because they played and won more games than the men. When you subtract the bonus money that, uh, that these women made in 2015, you know, they're probably making seventy-two, dollars $80,000 apiece. So you mean had they not been winning, they would not have made anywhere close to what the men made? That's right. Despite being upset at last summer's Olympics, the women are still number one in the world, according to FIFA. They say their fight is only with U.S. soccer, not with the U.S. men's team, who are ranked a respectable, if unspectacular, 24th in the world. This team taught all America's children that playing like a girl means you're a badass. On stage at the White House in October 2015, they were national heroes celebrating their latest World Cup win. Back on the job, they were disgruntled workers whose negotiations with U.S. soccer had ground to a halt and grown increasingly bitter. The women decided to change tactics. Enter the federal agency known as the EEOC, or the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Why file this suit with the EEOC? We wanted to put pressure on them, and so with the EEOC complaint, it's, it seemed like a no-brainer for us. Their complaint accuses U.S. soccer of violating the Equal Pay Act and Title VII, which protects employees against discrimination based on sex. The commission has the power to award damages, issue the right for workers to sue, or do nothing at all. This has never been done before? No, not, not by professional athletes, no. Uh, Why is this case so different? Because it's, there's never been a situation where the same employer is, is, has hired men and women to play the same sport under the same working conditions. Like the WNBA and the NBA are two separate organizations. Correct. Same employer, same job, same work conditions, same everything. The Federation's lawyers responded to the EEOC complaint by saying any differences in the compensation paid men and women players are driven by factors other than gender. Coming to you live from the major factors, according to U.S. Soccer, are revenue and TV ratings. They say men's games on channels like ESPN average audiences four times larger than the women. But the Federation sells both teams to broadcasters and sponsors as one entity, this year for about $45 million. The president of U.S. soccer is Sunil Gulati. He teaches economics at Columbia University. We requested an interview with Mr. Gulati, but he declined. 
In a statement, the Federation said they are actively working to reach a new agreement with the women's team. They're looking backwards. You know, we're looking to go forwards from now and on. And we've shown and they've projected in their own financials that we are going to make them money. So it's, I think, unfair to pay us less based on performances in the past. Thank you. Thanks. According to U.S. soccer's own projections for this year, the women will net about $5 million from ticket sales, while the men will lose about a million dollars. But it turns out this labor dispute is about more than just money. 60 Minutes has learned the EEOC is also asking questions about the differences between the men and women when it comes to playing conditions, equipment, and travel. How do the women travel to games? Well, we fly and coach. The men, though, as part of their agreement, fly first class. Yes. To be able to perform like we do and to be the best in the world, we should be treated the same as them. We were curious what this fight means to a younger generation of female soccer players. Asia Horn, Annalise Schwartz, Sarah Sullivan, and Joelle Kelly told us they closely follow the women's national team on social media. They play for Marymount, an all-girls school in Manhattan, and for local soccer clubs, where they've also noticed differences in how the male and female teams are treated. The boys' teams would get more field time than the girls' teams. We would have to share space with other age groups while the boys would have full field. So, Joelle, given what the disparities that you've noticed mm -hmm. and what you're witnessing the U.S. women's soccer team do, what's the lesson that you learned from that? What they're doing is for us, so we can have that equal pay and that, so that we can be on the same level as men. The women's contract with U.S. soccer expires this coming New Year's Eve. Whether or not the EEOC decides in their favor, they say they'll remain focused on their goal with all options on the table. If you don't get a ruling from the EEOC, if you don't get what you want from the Soccer Federation, will you go on strike? It would be a discussion that we would have to have. There's a possibility that they may strike if they don't get equal pay. Would you support that? Yes. yes. Why? Because nothing's going to change if they don't stand up for what they want, they're never going to get it. Would you like to meet some women on the U.S. women's soccer team? Yes. yes. Hello. Hello. Hi. How are you doing? Charlie. I'm Becky. It's great to meet you. It's nice to meet you. Hi, Morgan. Oh, you're crying. I'm Becky. It's great to meet you. What does it mean to meet these guys? The world. Shaking. <laughs> This is history making, what we're doing, what we're fighting for. It not only resonates with this team and with generations to come, but it's global as well. Carly, you keep saying you're united. How far are you going to take this? Until we get what we want. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Bruno Mars is one of the world's biggest music stars, and he's one of the most driven people we've ever seen. Just 31, he's the product of what he calls a school of rock education, a working-class life of experiences that have taught him the music business. None of it came easily. He's been broke, busted, and nearly homeless. But this week, following the release of his first album in four years, 
He's on top of the music world. To show us how he got there, Bruno Mars did something he's never done. He shared with us some of the toughest moments of his Hawaiian upbringing and gave us the opportunity to witness his extraordinary skills as a songwriter and producer. We begin with Bruno Mars, the entertainer. This show in Connecticut last month was his first public concert of the year. And he used it as a tune-up for the release of his new album and world tour to follow. On every song and every note, from arenas to halftime of the Super Bowl, he and his band, The Hooligans, perform full throttle. His standards are high because the legends of music set them. I just really care about what people see. I want them to know that I'm, I'm working hard for this. The artists I look up to, like, you know, Michael, Prince, James Brown, you watch them and you understand that they're paying attention to the details of their art, and they care so much about what they're wearing, about how they're moving, about how they're making the audience feel. They're not phoning it in. They're going up there to murder anybody that performs after them or performs before them. That's what I've watched my whole life and admired. He is a throwback. You see it in the choreography on stage. and hear it in the songs themselves, descendants of the generations that came before him. When I listen to your songs, mm -hmm. you can hear all those people that you've listened to yeah. over the years. A lot of people are really quick to say, that song sounds like this, or he's trying to sound like this. And I'm always like, you're damn right I am. That's, how, that's why we're all here. You know, we all grew up idolizing another musician. That's how this works. That's how music is created. The musical education of Bruno Mars began in his hometown, Honolulu, Hawaii. He was born Peter Hernandez to a Puerto Rican father and Filipino mother, parents who were professional musicians, performing together in the tourist showrooms of Waikiki Beach. Their act was called The Love Notes. Hey, Bruno, are you ready to rock and roll? And when Bruno was four years old, his parents included him in the family business. He played Little Elvis, and it's when he first learned he could steal the show. The Little Elvis routine lasted six years, but the lessons of his parents' Vegas-style Waikiki Entertainment Review have lasted a lifetime. You know, it's like school of rock for me. And it was just this kind of razzle-dazzle lifestyle. That's real showbiz. Yeah, show business, you know? Right? If you wasn't hitting those notes and the audience wasn't uh, freaking out, then you weren't doing it right. 
By the time he turned 12, his parents divorced and the family band broke up. Money was tight. His four sisters moved in with his mom. He and his brother lived with his dad. On top of this building? On top of this building. Anywhere they could. My dad was just the king of finding these little spots for us to stay that we should never have been staying at. But you were like homeless people. Yeah, no, yeah, for sure. We was in a limousine at once. 1984 limousine. Sleeping in the back of a car on top of buildings and this place. So this is where you lived? Yeah. Paradise Park, a bird zoo where his dad took a job. This was the first time he'd been back here since. Even people who work with him haven't heard this part of his story. Where we were staying at first yeah. didn't have a bathroom. So we'd have to walk across the park to this other spot that had a bathroom. Wow. In the, in, and sometimes in the middle of the night. In the middle of the night. When the park closed, they stayed moving into this one-room building. Right this here. was your house? If yeah. They lived here for more than two years. Just so people don't think we're crazy, yeah. it did not look like this. It had a roof? It had a roof. It didn't have plants growing inside. It didn't have plants growing inside. I don't know what happened to the roof, but the bed would be right there in the middle. Yeah. And you'd all sleep in one bed? We'd all sleep in one bed. Happy memories? The best. That is kind of amazing. Yeah. And that what you remember about it is not the struggle or the things you didn't have. No. It's all the things you, you had. Yeah. We had it all, you know. We had each other. And it never felt like it was the end of the world. Sorry, right, we don't got, we don't got electric today. It's all right. It's temporary. So we're going to figure this out. You know, maybe that's why I have this mentality when it comes to the music. Because I know I'm going fig to figure it out. Just give me some time. As soon as he graduated high school, he left the Waikiki showrooms and Hawaii altogether. You could have stayed here, right? And, and you could happy. Yeah, and made a good living and, and done what your dad did and been a big star in Hawaii. I wanted to go for it. You wanted more. I wanted more. And my family pushed me. And this island pushed me. How? These are my people and this is my culture and I want to represent them. I want people to think of Hawaii and think of palm trees and magical <laughs> islands and, and Bruno Mars. So he headed for Los Angeles, where he was quickly signed by Motown Records. Gone was his given name of Peter Hernandez, branding himself Bruno Mars instead. Bruno, his childhood nickname, Mars shooting for the stars. The name stuck, but the record contract didn't. Motown dropped him. I don't blame Motown. I don't, I, I was, sim it was simply, I wasn't ready yet. I think everybody don't know what color I am. It's like, he's not black enough, he's not white enough, he's got a Latin-ass name, but he doesn't have, he doesn't speak Spanish. Well, who are we selling this to? You know, are you making urban music? Are you making pop music? What kind of music are you making? With no hit songs of his own and dead broke, he started over, writing and producing songs for other artists with friends Ari Levine and Philip Lawrence. They were starving musicians. Inspired by the hustle just to pay for food, they came up with this song. I want to be a billionaire so freaking bad by all of the... It led to another record deal of his own. When I see your face, 
His career as a songwriter and performer was finally on track. Just the way you are. About that time, though, he was arrested for possession of two and a half grams of cocaine. From the outside, you really seem to keep it together and to be very professional and, you know, very committed. But you nearly threw it all away. I did something very stupid. I'm in Las Vegas, Laura. I'm 24 years old. I'm, you know, drinking way more than I'm supposed to be drinking. And it was so early in my career. And I always said that I think it had to happen. That was the reality check I needed. And I, I promised myself that, that, you know, you're never going to read about that again. Headlines for hits, not drug busts, have been his narrative ever since, capped by two Super Bowl halftime performances in three years. And three Grammys, including Record of the Year, for his collaboration with producer Mark Ronson, Uptown Funk. It's the biggest hit in a career full of them. How difficult is it to write a song that's great? Uptown Funk took us almost a year to write. There's songs that taken, that's taken us two hours to write, and we throw them away. Uptown Funk was in the trash can about ten times. Really? Yeah. Why? Because we made a lot of, you know, you could make a left turn, and all of a sudden this song is something terrible, embarrassing almost. But you have this one thing that keeps you going. There's one part of the song that feels so good, and it makes you want to keep going, and it makes you want to keep, how would you just try again? Let's try again, let's try again. He told us the conception of much of his music begins in this California recording studio. This is it, Law. Over the last two years, he's been on lockdown here, trying to answer the challenge created from his run of big hits, especially his last one. This album, it was daunting because coming off of Uptown Funk was like the biggest song I've ever been a part of. And I mean, like, all right, now what are you going to do? Look out! This is what he came up with. His new album, 24 Karat Magic, the title song out just six weeks, is already another massive hit. He showed us how they built the song from the drums up. That's how it starts. And then? Oh, come on. Come on. <laughs> And then we could put some sparkle on it, like put a, put a little magic dust on it. See that? <laughs> Drums and bass is locking, right? Yes. Feel good yet? Yes. And you add the sauce, the secret sauce. You ready? Mm. Guess who's back again? 
it's easy to see that Bruno Mars loves the only job he's ever wanted. And that he's still driven to get it right. I was built for this, Laura. It's dedicating yourself to your craft, spending thousands of hours in the studio learning how to write a song, learning how to play different chords, training yourself to sing, you know, to get better and better. Are you there? No, not even close. I gotta look for inspiration. Bruno Mars <laughs> teaches songwriting 101 <laughs> at 60minutesovertime.com. Sponsored by Lyrica. In the mail this week, we were swamped by thousands of comments about last Sunday's interview with President-elect Trump and his family. Once again, it was as if we'd broadcast two different stories. I could hardly stomach watching Miss Stahl sneering, baiting, practically ridiculing the Trumps. Disappointed in the overly sensitive manner in which your show presented President-elect Trump. I'm Leslie Stahl. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes. If you like 60 Minutes, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Don't miss true crime anytime you want, anywhere you go with the 48 Hours Podcast. Real crimes. Like a John Grisham novel come to life. Real lives. He pointed a gun to me and said, this is the day you die. And he shot me. Real justice. There's some questions that have to be asked and need to be answered. I'm an innocent man, and I hope the whole world can see it now. Catch the latest episodes of 48 Hours wherever you get your podcasts. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most-watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.